Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Power of the Dog. The Power of the Dog was written by Thomas Savage and published in 1967. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2021, was directed by Jane Campion. And this is part of our Oscars theme this month. Uh We already did an episode on Macbeth because um, the new movie came out directed by Joel Cohen, starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. So we did that episode and now we're doing one of the most awarded Oscar films this year, The Power of the Dog. And... This, we're obviously recording this before the Oscars, and it will come out before the Oscars. Yes. Uh, currently, I still think it's predicted to, it's still considered the front runner mm-hmm. at this point. I know CODA has kind of gotten some momentum from the Screen Actors Guild Awards and things like that. So I'll yeah. be curious if we'll get, if Power of the Dog will win or if we'll get an upset. But mm-hmm. um, currently, Power of the Dog has a lot of nominations. It's got a Best Actor nomination for Benedict Cumberbatch. Two supporting actor nominations for Jesse Plemons and uh, Cody Smith-McPhee. Wow. Supporting actress for... uh, Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst, thank you. Best picture, obviously. Uh, Best director for Jane Campion. It's got a music nomination, cinematography, production, sound design, and... Adapted screenplay. Yep. Which is our uh, our, our wheelhouse. Yes. <laughs> We're prepared. We have hot takes. We had hot takes when um Little Women yes. lost the best adapted screenplay. Mm-hmm. And we may ha- continue to have strong takes this uh, award season. Yeah, we'll have to see. But um, also kind of promoting our next bonus episode, which will come out probably towards the beginning of April, which will be on the Oscars themselves. So anyone who supports us on Patreon, even if it's just a dollar a month, gets access to those bonus episodes. You get one a month. Next month's is going to be all about the Oscars. We're going to talk about our favorites, which which ones won, which didn't, which ones we're happy to see win, which ones we weren't. Um, but Ian and I are planning to watch all 10 movies that are nominated for Best Picture. We're, we've got eight of them right now. Eight, so. eight are in the bag, <laughs> and including a bunch of other ones like Spencer and obviously uh, Macbeth and yeah. a lot of those like ones that were acting nominations mm-hmm. or, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited this year to talk about uh, the Oscars in, in a bonus episode, so like you said, Adina, become a patron at any (laughs) level and uh, get to listen to that episode. Yeah. So let's get into the power of the dog. So I want to talk briefly, first off, uh, about a voiceover at the very beginning of this movie, which I didn't even remember from the first time we watched it. Yeah. So it was cool. I'm glad that when we watched uh, this movie for this episode, we've actually we had watched it once already Mm -hmm. when it came out on Netflix. And it was cool. So it's cool to be seeing it again. And at the very beginning of the movie, there's a voiceover uh, from Peter's character where he says about when his father died, he wanted to take care of his mother. Yes. And what kind of man would he be if he couldn't do that? Yeah. And 
it's funny because, like, you don't know anything about this character at this point. You don't know what the context of what he's saying is. Yeah. So, like, you easily forget this line. I actually thought when we first watched this movie that this was Benedict Cumberbatch speaking. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You like, because you don't know any of the characters. You don't know their voices, you no. know? Um, so I didn't, I didn't have any context. But, like, as soon as we started watching it for the second time, I was like, oh. Yeah, because this movie... Uh, you gain a lot from a rewatch on it. Definitely. And it, it's very uh, good for that, I'd mm-hmm. say. So, yeah, just a very interesting way of starting the movie off. Uh, similarly, the book starts off in a very interesting way. And by interesting, <laughs> I mean... I just have to... Okay, <laughs> talk about iconic lines and iconic beginnings of books. I'm just going to read you this book's beginning. Okay, these are literally the first lines. Phil always did the castrating. First, he sliced off the cup of the scrotum and tossed it aside. Next, he forced down first one, then the other testicle, slit the rainbow membrane that enclosed it, tore it out, and tossed it into the fire where the branding irons glowed. There was surprisingly little blood. In a few moments, the testicles exploded like huge popcorn. Some men, it was said, ate them with a little salt and pepper. Mountain oysters, Phil called them, with that sly grin of his. Uh, I mean... (laughs) I'm, I'm sorry, I, I tuned that out. I, I, I chose not to listen. <laughs> I mean, it has no effect on me, but I'm sure uh, some listeners might find it triggering. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's such a good beginning to this book because, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. There's just kind of like, I don't want to say the brutality of the West, but like of this industry and the kind of the... um. Kind of the person it takes to do this job. Yeah. And then, I mean, you're talking about, like, castration in a book that's kind of about, like, sexual repression. Yeah. Which is, like, very... Significant. And, yeah, and significant and great in that context. Mm-hmm. So, really solid opening line yeah. for this book that I... I Despite uh, my discomfort, I do very much appreciate. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, was there a way that the movie could have somehow captured this? Uh, like, it's only. so good. I mean, the movie does capture... That later, the actual scene yeah, of the actual doing castration it. later on, which I don't know how they did that. I mean, I'm guessing with props because they probably didn't actually castrate a cow. I don't know. I don't know what the rules on that are <laughs> because I mean, like they do that. Yeah, yeah. So can you just film it and put it in a movie, or is that now animal cruelty? Yeah, I don't know what the <laughs> uh, what the laws are there. Yeah, unclear. They also filmed in New Zealand, so like, what are the rules in New Zealand? Yeah, that's something else that's kind of interesting and slightly funny about this movie is that, you know, it takes place in Montana in the mm-hmm. 1920s. Um, and this movie, I think a lot of people are aware of this by now, but uh, the actor, Sam Elliott, yeah. who, you know, the guy with the white handlebar mustache who has played a, a cowboy, cowboy his whole life. Yeah, and everything, <laughs> recently was slamming this movie for its depiction of uh, uh, gay men as cowboys. And then was also complaining about it being filmed in New Zealand yeah. and it being Montana, mm-hmm. which I have heard other people kind of like complain about that or nitpick. Yeah. And I'm very curious if anyone would have said anything about it if the movie didn't begin with like the title cards and saying like in association with the New Zealand I know. film board. <laughs> and then like two seconds later, like the title card of like Montana, Montana. comes up. Like, <laughs> would anyone have like even thought twice about this? I don't know. That's a good question. Because like tons of movies are filmed in other locations than like where they're yeah. actually taking place. And like no one notices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious if anyone would have thought twice about this 
not being in Montana if it wasn't like obvious from the beginning. I'm not sure. Yes, but the scenery, <laughs> the scenery is gorgeous. It in is. The film. It is gorgeous. And as someone who's never been to Montana, I don't know if I've noticed <laughs> anything that I that's was like, true. that's not Montana. I'm sure someone who actually lived in Montana and is familiar with the landscape might have more problems with it. But yeah, but for us, meh. it's fine. It's it's fine. <laughs> Let's talk about the two brothers of this story, though, because we have Phil, who's the elder brother. And then George. And they are joint owners of this very prosperous ranch in Montana. So the two of them have been running the ranch for 25 years now. Yes. Yeah. And they are currently doing a uh, cattle drive Mm -hmm. to the nearest town where they plan on loading up um, their livestock. And for Phil, you know, it's their 25th year and he's very invested in this. He's kind of like excited about it, you know, eager to, you know, hit the trail. Uh, His brother, George, though, seems less enthused. Yeah, their moods are very different. Phil is kind of in a fun joking mood um he likes to uh, the book describes it as uh get george's goat <laughs> he loves getting just, goats yeah he which is just to like tease him um and the way that he gets george's goat is to just repeatedly call him fatso yeah um and so he's in this kind of mocking fun mood but george is not really responding to it and seems kind of down and this is a really interesting representation of their relationship because phil is the older brother he's more you know, animated, sharp, and George definitely seems like kind of the dimmer star in the family, like overshadowed by his brother constantly. Yeah, and the book gets into this in such interesting detail in terms of like their backstory, their kind of contrasting personalities. George is just, um, he's a very nice guy. Yeah. But uh, like a little dull, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's being unfair, but like certainly when you compare him to Phil. Yeah. Who is uh, like incredibly intelligent, mm-hmm. yet like the most kind of man, manly man, ranch guy. Yeah. Um, he takes a lot of pride in, you know, being able to do things on his own. He takes pride in not wearing gloves. Yeah. When doing like all of his ranch activities. So like he's constantly cutting and nicking his hands and they're just like rough, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, calloused. And so they're like and and George is just very subdued. Yeah. So they kind of and physically, too, you know, George is kind of squat, a little heavy set. Phil is tall and Mm -hmm. lean and like the casting. Yes. For these characters. I know. Is so spot on in the film. It's perfect. You know, Jesse Plemons, who in the past has played like very simple but well-meaning or like creepy, creepily silent characters. Yes. So that kind of taciturn, silent, brooding, but kind of well-meaning person is well-fitted to his personality. Actually, I read that Paul Dano was originally supposed to play George. Interesting. Which I could, he'd be fine, but like, Jesse Plemons seems like the obvious first choice. Yeah. Especially since in real life, he is married to Kirsten Dunst. I know. So, you know, on top of that. (laughs) Uh, And then... Benedict Cumberbatch as Phil. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about this in our episode on um, uh, Atonement. Yeah. 
And I, I think Cumberbatch is aware of this and so are directors. He's great when he's playing like kind of a shitty guy. Yeah. Or like a really shitty guy. <laughs> and I think this is kind of the perfect role for him. He is. but And I think he does a good job of being awful, but also being interesting and sympathetic in some ways as well. So he really rides that line really well. And I want to like specifically mention a scene in the book or <laughs> a scene in the book, a scene in the movie that we see. And it's also mentioned in the book, which is like the brothers at the beginning of this movie, where you see that they the room they share has these twin beds. <laughs> yeah. So like they run the ranch. Their parents um, owned it before them. And then they kind of like retired. And now they live in a hotel in a big city. And they're like, OK, like you kids can run the ranch like we're out. Um, so. These men who Phil is 40, uh, I think George is like 38 or so. Yeah. They, you know, they're very old. And instead of moving out of their childhood bedroom <laughs> with twin beds, they've just lived there this whole time. And I think it's such a great image because it shows you exactly where they are. Yes. Like mentally and emotionally in their relationship to each other and also like just their relationship to the world and kind of how things will change from here yeah. moving on. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's great because, like, you get the sense that George is kind of discontent with his life. Yes. Wanting to move on, maybe take the next step. And you don't even need, like, an explanation for it. Like, it's not that anything happened. No. And you don't need one because when you see them both living in their childhood bedrooms, you're like, this is not sustainable. Yeah. And when you see Phil mocking him, calling him fatso and just kind of like being a shitty person, you're like, I would want things to change as well. <laughs> yeah. And and Phil is described, especially in the book, as being like very boyish. Yeah. And I think that's so true. Like he just loves teasing people and mm -hmm. making fun of them. And like, even though he's so smart and capable. Yeah. There's something about him that feels like in this state of arrested development. Like An immaturity. He, yeah, that he like kind of doesn't have to grow up, even though he's perfectly he like. He kind of revels in his immaturity. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene in the movie that is so great. It's such a great scene. And I think it's like most people wouldn't think twice about it. But mm -hmm. it, it's, it establishes so much with Phil and George. So they've arrived in town with their cattle and all the men have gone to the bar to take like a celebratory drink. Yeah. And George isn't there yet. And the men are like kind of waiting around and Phil's like, we don't give a toast until George gets here. Yeah. So establishing Phil is very loyal to George. Yes. Even though he's kind of a jerk to him. He's like very loyal. Then George shows up and George is like not taking any of this seriously. He's no. like, uh, you know, you guys could have drank without me. Like, I don't really care. George tries to, like, get everyone to go to dinner. Yeah. And, like, he's so weak at it and, like, no one listens to him. Yeah. So quickly establishing, like, even though he's a co-owner of the ranch, like, the men don't listen to him. They listen to Phil. Yes. Then Phil gets pissed at George and kind of turns on him and, like, really digs into him about, like, um, you know, you're not respecting the anniversary yes. or what Bronco Henry taught to us mm -hmm. or, like anything that we've done and like you know calling him fat so again and then all he does is whistle and literally every man in the bar follows phil out yes. to the dining hall mm -hmm. so like you get so many interesting dynamics in this one scene yeah phil's loyalty but also his abuse of george george kind of being like incapable of being like the leader that these men need but phil stepping up to the plate yeah like i i think it's a very 
subdued scene, mm-hmm. but it does such a good job of capturing so much. I agree. It's it just it really shows the relationship and the complicated relationship between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, and let's talk about Bronco Henry because this is a character we never meet in either the book in neither the book nor the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We don't meet Bronco Henry in the movie and we don't meet him in the book either, but he's talked about a lot in both. And Bronco Henry, we never understand the circumstances of his involvement in Phil and George's life. But at some point in their young, young lives, I'm guessing he was hired by their parents. Mm -hmm. Um, He taught them to ride a horse. He taught them everything that they know about ranching and tending to their cattle. And Bronco Henry was kind of this legendary figure. You know, Phil is telling these stories to the men and being like, oh, I remember when Bronco Henry, he was a real man. He jumped a horse over this whole thing and he did this wild thing. And, you know, he's just like such a typification of like this Wild West hero. Yes. He's this like legend. The mythic figure of yes. the West. Yeah. Yeah. That almost seems like, you know, you never see him in person or as a character portrayed in the Booker movie. Yeah. All you have are these stories that like Phil has of him, which is kind of how that mythology kind of tends to unfold. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but like clearly he left a very big impact on Phil's life specifically. George seems like less um, interested in reminiscing yeah. or remembering him. Mm-hmm. And it's unclear if like maybe George doesn't care so much about Bronco Henry or if his mind is more towards the future and less in the past. Yeah, it, yeah, for sure. Uh, so they all go to this uh, inn to have a dinner, all the men. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a very annoying party of six (laughs) dining in there as well, who Phil uh, quickly lashes out at. Yeah, they're like playing the piano and drinking. He's like, shut that thing up. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's one of those player pianos in the movie. The guy is like, whoa, pretending. I'm like, oh my God, (laughs) some things like never change. And I love that. (laughs) Um. There's this great moment. So, um, you know, the the inn is run by a woman named Rose and her son is helping to uh, serve everyone. Her Mm -hmm. son, Peter, her son, Peter is I think he's supposed to be a teenager in this 16, 17. Yeah. Which uh, Cody Smith McPhee, who plays him, is like late 20s at this point. Yeah. Still can play a teenager, though. Pretty convincingly. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But Phil, you know, while he's sitting at the table, he notices these paper flowers mm-hmm. that are decorating the tables and is like, oh, look at these. And he's kind of mocking them. And Peter very almost innocently is like, oh, I made them because he's like, oh, I wonder what pretty lady made these. Yeah. And, you know, on the rewatch, there's a moment where he's holding the flower and he happens to look at Peter. And I yeah. think he makes the connection that he suspects like that he made them. Yeah. So when he says that, like what pretty, I think he's like luring Peter into admitting it, admitting it or just trying to make fun of him mm-hmm. through saying that. But yeah. And Phil is specifically noticing that Peter, the teenager is somewhat effem- effeminate in his manner, you know, has a little bit of a lisp, you know, is kind of formal in serving them, you know, has like a cloth on his arm for the wine drips, as he says. Yes. Um, And has made these paper flowers. And to Phil, it's funny. And so he's mocking Peter to all these ranch hands, all these yeah. rough men 
And in fact, while he's telling a Bronco Henry story, he uses one of the paper flowers to light his cigarette and sets it on fire. Yeah. And this is specifically in the movie, although the mocking does happen in the book as well. Yeah. And then there's a part where, you know, Peter's mother, Rose, sees what is happening and takes the paper flowers away from the table. I love how the camera doesn't focus on her doing that. It's almost just like to the side. Mm -hmm. You see her collecting the paper flowers. Yeah, like noticing what he has done and being and wanting to protect what she see, has seen her son made and what she thinks is beautiful. Yeah, and this is like such an impactful scene too because we just see Phil's um, cruelty on display. We've yeah. already seen him be cruel to his brother and now we see it extending to everybody around him. And of course, the ranch hands don't feel his cruelty because they idolize him and they follow him. But everybody else is kind of subject to Phil's cruelty. Yeah, I love, you know, the writing in this book is so good. I, I love when this scene is described when Peter uh, enters the room and Thomas Savage describes him as having a towel over draped over his arm just so. Yeah. Specifically, that's how he phrases it, just so. And mm-hmm. you immediately understand the context of this. that this is kind of a, a prissy kind of thing, you know, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. and that it's kind of like delicate feeling but like out of place and awkward and yeah uh the way it's just described is so like you get it and it's from phil's perspective specifically Mm -hmm. and like how he kind of like hates sissies he hates like weak seeming yes and he wants them he he says the term and it says it in the movie too he wants them to snap out of it and get human yeah which i think is a very interesting turn of phrase yeah they all clear out and we have a scene in the book uh and the movie where rose um peter's mother is crying in the kitchen and george who has stayed back to pay the bill and let phil and all the other ranch hands go Hears her crying and kind of goes in to comfort her. Yeah. Uh, And it's kind of a a touching moment. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit here about the book because the book actually goes into a lot more detail about the history of Rose and her son, Peter. Yes. And in fact, we get uh, the history of their father. Yeah. You know, when the movie begins is already dead. Yeah. Uh, And so he was a doctor who Mm -hmm. went through medical school and... He was described as, like, being a good doctor and very empathetic, but, like, couldn't quite find his niche. Yeah. And maybe even in another time, like, in 10 years from then, he could have, like, been a better doctor. Yeah. Um, But he meets Rose when she is playing piano at a uh, uh, moving picture show. (laughs) (laughs) And he kind of courts her and, Mm -hmm. you know, talks about how beautiful she is. And they end up getting married. And going west. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, he starts his doctor practice and they open up an inn to kind of supplement their income. And it quickly turns into the inn totally supporting their income and him not making a lot of money from his doctor practice. Yeah. So things go like, you know, kind of start falling apart at the inn. Mm -hmm. They talk about this, uh, not a windmill, but a wind turbine out back that's like broken and just spinning freely. And uh, the dad begins to turn to uh, alcohol yeah, it's sort of interesting because we we get a hint that he was maybe an al- alcoholic the whole time. Yeah, it, it kind of like 
feeds you that information like later, but it's unclear like when it began. Yeah, that he was, you know, drinking when he was courting Rose, but was a little more selective about it, that he wasn't, you know, promoted at his previous job because of his drinking, you know? Yeah. And then it gets more and more out of hand the more his practice fails in the West and, you know, the older he gets. And they have their son, Peter, who, you know, is often ill as well. And so there's like a lot of pressure on his life and he seems to be struggling with that. But you do have sympathy for him and he and it's talked about how he's very kind. And in fact, like he doesn't charge people who can't afford his services, you know, as a doctor. And he helps a lot of the poor community in that in their area who can't afford to hire one of the other doctors but then we have this incident that happens where johnny rose's husband is at the bar because he has become a drunk at this point and kind of gets into a confrontation with this rancher and it's only as the scene kind of continues that we start to realize that this rancher is phil i thought the way this played out was so good. Yeah. I mean, first of all, earlier in the story where it's more in the present, they talk about like them herding the cattle in town and they talk about, oh, this one doofusy guy one year who like came out to watch and scared the cows and Phil shot over the guy's head. Yeah. And you find out that at this point that like, oh, my God, that was Johnny. Yeah. That was Peter's father mm-hmm. who Phil shot at. And then, you know, you get the scene of him being drunk at the bar and trying to talk to this ranch guy who's just like humoring him until he clearly gets too annoyed. And then you realize like, oh, my God, he's talking to Phil. Yeah, because he tries to talk to him about Greek and the Greek root of this uh, word for this flower, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then this ranch hand, who at this point has been unnamed, turns to him and is like just schools him yeah he's like i don't know where you learned greek but that's not actually the greek root of that word (laughs) and that like and he just like and i think this is the moment where i realized like oh my god this is phil because what other ranch hand would like know this kind of thing yeah and he just completely embarrasses him and then actually ends up in like a fist fight with him yeah and punches him and you know johnny ends up on the floor and is just completely humiliated and i don't think Rose or Peter ever finds out who does this to no. Johnny, but like this really affects him and kind of leads to a depressive period where he kind of stops drinking. And then he has this scene where he talks to his son, Peter, and Peter wants to be a doctor as well when he grows up. And it's this touching moment between them where Johnny, you know, tells Peter that he loves him and, you know, that he hopes that he'll be a good doctor. And we get a part that is only referred to much later in the film where he, you know, wants him to be kind and that he's worried he's too strong. Yeah. And I think the intention of him saying this is unclear at this point. Like, what exactly does he mean yeah. by this? Um, but it is very interesting. And, he, you know, he kind of has this, like, moment with Peter, this heartfelt moment. And then he goes back inside and then is later, you know, discovered to have hung himself. Yeah. Hanged himself. Sorry. And uh, it's obviously extremely tragic and it kind of puts a a mark on rose and peter and the end after that like people know it is like the suicide house Mm -hmm. and like you know it's kind of the talk of the town and you know rose and peter kind of have to like change their life a little bit to try to like deal with that i think yeah and so picking up here with them and this 
another encounter with Phil, which they don't even know was part of the reason, you know, maybe part of the reason that Johnny killed himself. It certainly uh, (laughs) had him evaluating his life, (laughs) I would say, to put it kindly. Yeah. And, you know, all the I love how the book kind of just shows you all these forces coming together and these people in this community and how everybody's actions affect each other in ways that you're not even aware of at the time. And the book is so good at showing you this slowly. And this was something I really loved about the beginning of the book where, you know, there's a scene later in the book where Phil talks about like, oh, some bar fly uh, (laughs) that he met that he like was trying to show him up. And like just hearing different perspectives of like the same incident and kind of putting the pieces together. It was really cool to read stuff like this in the book. Yeah. Tying this back into the movie, watching it uh, a second time after having read the book and gaining more insight into Johnny's history and his death. Mm -hmm. There's a very eerie moment where Phil is waiting in their room at the inn for George. And, you know, he's kind of staying up and he hears a noise and he thinks it's George and he actually like goes to the door. Yeah. And no one's there. Mm hmm. And to me, it felt kind of spooky. Yeah. And like, I was just wondering, like, is this the room that the dad killed himself? Because mm. they even show, they show the, rope. the rope that was like made for like, if there's a fire, you throw it out the window and climb out. But yeah. Like, the book tells us that was the rope that the dad hung himself with. Yeah. And he just kind of like, I don't know, watching that moment where he hears a noise and thinks it's George. Yeah. Felt spooky to me. Yeah, it was kind of unsettling. So I, I don't I don't know if that was like an intentional like allusion to the dad mm-hmm. and his presence or not. But, uh, it, you know, it was interesting. Yeah, because the movie leaves Johnny's backstory out completely and just kind of references it later. Um, so, yeah, it could be just kind of a nod to that history in the book. Yeah, yeah. So... Getting back to the ranch and to the brothers, like, we see a little bit more of Phil, and in the book we're reading a little bit more about him. And, you know, we've already kind of talked about how he's such a contradiction, right? Because he's so smart. He went to college. You know, he knows Greek and Latin. He's really well-read. And he's also, like, really talented, multi-talented in so many ways. We hear about and we see him, you know, playing the banjo really well. He... Uh, does all this woodworking. Yeah, he whittles. He works like an iron. He, yeah. Iron and metal. And uh, he can kind of just do it all to yeah. a degree. You know, anything he puts his mind to, he seems capable of doing. Yeah, and he knows it. Yeah. You know, yes. he's good at it. And he's good at everything and he knows it. And he kind of thinks he's better than everybody else. Like, yeah. he really does. And he loves being better than everyone else at everything. But he chooses to be this ranch hand persona, Mm -hmm. right? He leans into this hyper-masculine role, you know, without the, no gloves. Yeah. Because he's a man and he doesn't need gloves. And like, you know, not bathing, being dirty, kind of talking in a, like a Western accent, not proper. Yeah. And kind of mocking people who are thinking themselves above like the common man, but also thinking that he's above the common man at the same time. Yes. I love, (laughs) I love its description of like, and the movie does this too, where he kind of mispronounces things to be funny. Yeah. Or like if he's really angry, he'll like purposely mispronounce things. There, there's also a great part too, where like in the book, he, uh, swindles a child (laughs) out of his marbles (laughs) Just for the heck of it. Yeah. And he doesn't keep them. He gives them back. Yeah. But I love this depiction because like, I think 
you know, George or uh, Phil thinks he's like real sly, real smart. And like in this situation, he's fucking with a child. Yeah. And I think to a degree, he kind of sees everyone that way. Yeah. Like he kind of always sees himself in that role above the other person. Yeah. Which I think foreshadowing later on in the book is his downfall. For underestimating people. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, when you take his relationship with his brother George, right? Like, George never really fights back, you know? Is never an opponent for him. But Phil is happy with that. Like, he's content with how their roles are. Yeah. Um, And he, like, talks about how his brother has a really good memory. But, like, even saying that, like, oh, yeah, he has really good memory. He says, like, in the book, he's like, well, he had a really good memory because his mind was, like, actually slower. So he needed to compensate <laughs> yeah. for having a slow mind by just memorizing everything instead of just being, like, George has a good memory and I'm good at this. He's like, well, it's because his mind is slower than mine, you know? And, and the things he remembers are dumb, like what page on a book he's on. Or yeah. Like, and he like shits on like the type of reading that George does. Like he reads like, uh, what is it? The Saturday Evening Post yes. or something. Which I think is just like stories and kind yeah. of like soft pieces and uh, like not real reading as Phil would think of it. Yeah, but you know, Phil is happy in this dynamic as being the superior in their relationship. And he has George to rely on. Even though he thinks he's better than him, he kind of counts on George's presence in his life. Yeah. He's sort of this representation of, like, stability. And they've been together in this relationship, running the ranch and as brothers for their whole lives. So things start to get a little upset when suddenly George is leaving the ranch to visit rose yes we see him uh you know driving his car to the nearby town to see her we get this great scene where he kind of shows up unexpectedly and rose is like uh i'm working but uh you can sit in the kitchen if you want (laughs) and this is pulled straight from the book but uh george sits there and reads the labels for like sauces out loud (laughs) it's just like great with meat fish and cheese (laughs) he ends up serving some rowdy customers when peter can't be found i love that he just kind of steps in and is okay with this like he just kind of shows his generosity and and also just uh kindness yeah and i think rose notices this in the book we get a little bit more about how he visited her a lot But um, Phil is really upset about this when he finds out. In the movie, we get a scene of Phil kind of coming downstairs when George comes home and it's late at night. And he's sort of like, where have you been? Like, what have you been up to? You know, still mocking him, but it's clear that he's concerned. Yeah. And we get Phil continuing to want to reminisce about the past, talking about like all the girls that their mom would have over. Yeah. Which sounds very weird in the movie, but in the book, I think the context is just like... She wanted them to marry somebody fancy. Yeah, yeah, and so kind of socializing them. But, like, once again, George just, like, doesn't seem interested in Phil's, you know, going down memory lane. Yeah. And so Phil is very concerned and upset about this whole ordeal. He ends up writing a letter to their parents... (laughs) I'm going to tell mom and dad. I know. Part of me is like, is this too out of character for Phil? Yeah. Like, it does seem like a shitty, like, not that he wouldn't do something shitty, but like, it almost seems like he's relying on someone else to fix the problem. Yeah. So I I don't know. But like, he does write a letter informing the parents of like, 
George's uh, romantic interests in this woman who... In a suicide widow, is what he says. Which in the movie, I'm like, we're not even aware of that. We don't even know that Phil knows who this woman is. Yeah. That was kind of an information drop that... Felt a little out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he he mentions that she is a suicide widow. Yeah. And he, in a scene later, is telling George about how he wrote this letter. Yeah. And asking about what Mrs. Burbank would think of it. And George very weirdly and cryptically says, well, I imagine she would feel towards. I, I, I imagine, what does he say? One Mrs. Burbank would feel towards another Mrs. Burbank. Yeah. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> he's like, oh, I married her on Sunday. Yeah, kind of revealing that George has surprised Phil because Phil didn't think George would actually go through with it. Yeah. And George did. He and Rose are already married. And this is really shocking to Phil. We get a scene with him immediately after this in the book and the movie where he goes out and kind of beats the shit out of his horse. Yeah. Which is uh, not great. <laughs> As a funny little side thing, I, I laughed at the fact that uh, Phil mentions like, oh, if you wanted a piece of ass. Yeah. And I just thought that was funny that a term like that was around in the 50s. Like, I think of like piece of ass as being like a modern day yeah. thing. But I guess. Everybody always needs a piece of ass. Pieces of ass it's have timeless. existed for a long time, I guess, for decades. I had no idea. <laughs> So, you know, we see George and Rose married and we have a scene where they are setting Peter up in school because he's going to go to school now to be a doctor and he's going to be in the city going to school and Rose is going to go back with George to live with him on the ranch. Yeah, Uh, we get this really great scene of them on their way back in the book. It's a similar scene where they're going to a bank meeting. Yeah, but they have this kind of impromptu picnic on the side of the road in the book it's in the winter so they're they're just eating in the car yeah but george is still like a picnic in the car yeah this is so cool oh my god who would have thought of this (laughs) like this is like i want to tell everyone about this like he's so just like happy yes taken with like the smallest things Mm -hmm. it's so sweet and in the movie we get this scene where they're outside yes uh having tea and food and rose is teaching him how to dance Yeah. And then there's this emotional moment where George starts tearing up and kind of walks away from her. And she's like, what what's going on? And he turns back to her, you know, with tears on his face and says, it just means so much to me that I'm not alone anymore. Yeah. And this is so, so beautiful. And like in the book, he kind of wants to say it, but doesn't really say it. Yeah. Um. And we're told that he wants to say it and doesn't quite say it and just says, like, you know, we're not alone anymore. But it, the emotional impact is more present in the movie, I think. For sure. And I think this really shows us a character who so far has been very downtrodden. Yeah. We've seen him mocked, bullied, treated poorly by his brother, treated poorly by the men, you know, yeah. that he hires and just feeling like. We don't know why, but we know that he's unsatisfied. And now we see him with Rose and he is so emotional because he's suddenly like, I have someone 
to be with. I have someone to love and that loves me. And like, that's so much for him and he's overcome. Yeah. And truly just showing the disconnect he feels towards Phil. Yeah. The fact that he kind of considers himself to be alone. Yes. And I mean, like, yeah, you could just think of it as like being like in terms of a relationship, you know, like a romantic relationship. But like, it really feels like a deeper loneliness that he's kind of referring to in this moment yeah yeah so and i love i love this scene in the movie so much yeah it's it's so touching Mm -hmm. and i mean their chemistry is great they're both just very sweet and they're married in real life so bonus so it's great bonus points all around (laughs) they get to the ranch though and things are a little less touching and in fact they are very chilly Mm. (laughs) yes the house is quite cold when they arrive because the furnace is off who who knows phil says like i don't know what's going on i can't control the furnace (laughs) um but we get a tense moment where rose tries kind of you know reaching out to phil calling him brother phil yeah and he basically says fuck off yeah he says I'm not your brother. And he calls her a schemer. Yeah. Kind of implying that she wanted to be with George just for his money. This is similar to a scene much later in the book where Rose kind of gets the courage to ask Phil why he doesn't like her. And he says, because you're a schemer. Yeah. Um, But right away establishing that Phil is like, I don't like you. Mm-hmm. I think you're here for the wrong reasons. And I'm going to make you feel that dislike. The whole time. I'm not going to pretend that I like you for George's sake. I'm going to make your life miserable. Good thing they're only going to be sharing a house. Yeah, everything's going to be fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, no, totally. There's 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 certain parts of this movie, though, that when we first watched them, I felt a little confused on. Like, yeah. there, was, there was some context missing. And I do think that this is maybe... Uh, a fault of the movie or a downfall of the screenplay where it's a little bit too faithful yeah. to the book where the book could have these moments because you're getting an internal monologue of what characters are thinking and how yeah. they're processing information. But in the movie, you're getting the exact same moment, but with none of that context. Mm-hmm. So there's a scene where after this uh, chilly welcome, they are going to bed. Phil is in his you know, typical twin bed in he and George's old room. Yeah. And in the film, there's a moment where you see a door next to him and you hear it locking. You see like a key kind of go in the Mm -hmm. door and lock it. And Phil seems to look curious about that. Yeah. And then you see from George and Rose's perspective in a bathroom um, he's kind of showing her around. Yeah. And then you see her kind of like test the doorknob. Yeah. And I think it was like a little confusing when you watched it or when I watched it for the first time in the movie, because like when you see it locking, you don't know that that's like the bathroom door. Yeah. Per se. And then when she tests it, it's unclear. Like, did she lock it or did he lock it? And mm-hmm. like, I think that's the point. But I also think it's like a little unclear or like not quite as well executed as it could have been. Yeah, there is that part earlier in the movie where uh, George is in the bathtub and Phil is in the bedroom and it's like connected kind of. Yeah. But I I see what you mean. Yeah, I I guess I'd forgotten about that. But but yeah, like the, the ambiguity of who's locking the door. It's interesting and I really like that part in the book. Yeah. But I maybe think it's just like a little too subtle where you're not 
quite sure what you're supposed to be picking up from the film. Yeah, I think they could have simplified it and just established that their rooms were next to each other because I feel like what's more important that happens as this scene is that Phil can kind of hear them and he can kind of hear them have sex. Yeah. And Phil is like, nope, not doing this and kind of gets the fuck out. Yeah, he goes out to the uh, barn where he grabs a saddle that Mm -hmm. is kind of a... uh, in memoriam saddle for Bronco Henry. It was yeah. his saddle where his spurs are and his other stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, he has a very sexy oiling session <laughs> with the saddle. Yeah. And where the saddle is, it's very shrine like, right? Like there's a plaque mm-hmm. honoring Bronco Henry. There's the spurs, the saddle. There's also like a candle there that oh, I yeah. noticed, almost like lighting a candle for someone who has died. Um, but yes, this, this, um, Saddle oiling scene was very erotic. Yes, uh, and I think it was done tastefully and, like, you get the context. Just, like, the close-up shots of the hand. Yes. You know, I think the cinematography does a lot of the work here in conveying what the movie wants you to get from it. Yes. Let's talk about the piano, Ian. Oh, my God. This piano. George is like, listen, Rose, I know you're great at playing the piano. She's like, I'm not that great. He's like, you're great at playing the piano and I'm going to get you a piano. She's like, you don't need to get me a piano. He's like, I'm getting you a piano. (laughs) And then they get her a piano. In the movie, she just one day sees all these men bringing this piano in the house. But in the book, it's a little bit different. In the book, uh, we get a entire backstory to the delivery of this piano. The man is describing how... When they got it off the train, a a Swede, a Swede, he keeps referring to the guy as a Swede, uh, tried to help him move the piano. He tried to lift it in the wrong manner and possibly broke his back. Yes. He thought uh, he luckily didn't. But like he almost the man almost broke his back trying to lift this piano. And then they had to get like a whole team of other men to like move it. Get I think, it out to the ranch. I think there's a problem with the truck at one point when they were <laughs> out at the ranch, like they had to get other men to move it. And then some of them, he's like, don't move it this way or you'll break your back. Like that Swede <laughs> who had three children to provide for. And like Rose who didn't want the piano to begin with is just like, Oh my God. Like I feel so bad that this man almost died trying to move this piano for me. So it could just sit in the living room. Yes. And she is being pressured by George because they are inviting the governor over for dinner because Phil and George are part of this like very wealthy ranching family. So like they have a lot of influence in Montana and the governor is going to come to dinner to kind of celebrate George's marriage to Rose and Rose is expected to play the piano for him. Yeah. So she starts practicing and you can tell she's out of practice and really not that great. Or maybe she's just really nervous, but she's playing kind of the same jaunty tune over and over on the piano. And this start, this begins like this taunting between her and Phil. Yeah. Phil goes up to his bedroom and gets his banjo where he begins to play the same little part of the tune that she's practicing on his banjo. Yeah. In kind of a mocking way. Cause then he starts like, playing it better and riffing on it and, mm-hmm. like, kind of going to town. I mean, just showing, like, you know, he has a great ear. He just hears the tune. He can play it on the banjo like that. Yeah. And just continually mocking her to the point where she stops playing when he's around because yeah. she can't stand it. And just his presence making her so upset and so nervous. And, like, I want to, like, kind of just lead in and talk a little bit about how the book expands on this and how – Phil just makes everyone feel like shit all the time. 
everywhere. Yeah. Like, and there's this um, description of George because getting ready for the governor's visit, Rose kind of makes this arrangement out of weeds and flowers uh, around the ranch. Yeah. And she makes it to kind of impress George because she wants to do something nice. And when George see it, he thinks it's great. But like one of his first thoughts is, what will Phil say? Yeah. And this is such a, I think, example of what a hold Phil has over George. It's also so relatable, too, I think. Yes. Like we've all had that thought where you're like, and not even like an abusive person in your life, but someone who you're like, Oh God, I wonder what they're going to say about this thing or what they're going to, what their response to this will be. Yeah. And just that, that power that Phil has over George. And like, there's a point later on in the book too, when they're talking about how they would do Christmas with their family. um, And Phil would leave every time they exchanged presents. He would just Mm, not even be part of it. He would just leave. And so Phil rising from the table, going into the bedroom and closing the door while the presents were opened. And the old lady, that's what they call their parent, their parents, the old lady and the old gent, uh, pretending she had never learned. They had never learned to accept Phil as he was and to hell with it. She wanted to think they wanted to think that the Burbanks, at least on that one night, were like anybody else. And they were not. Phil saw them as stumbling, fumbling dabblers and wishers and dreamers. And except for Phil, that's what they were. How does one man, how does one man get the power to make the rest see in themselves what he sees in them? Where does he get the authority? But from somewhere he does get it. So this idea that like Phil's attitude and his kind of disdain for everyone around him makes everybody else feel like they're terrible yeah um and you know george remembers a time he put on this like dressing gown that his mom got for him just to please her and saying i liked it and then phil kind of coming up behind him and just mocking the shit out of him for it yeah just kind of this like toxic relationship of him constantly wanting to bring them down a peg yeah and just kind of like hold his authority over them make everybody miserable around him yeah it just and i think the movie does a great job of kind of getting this vibe but i think the book is able to like describe it so effectively too and give you like all these past examples and kind of the history of it yeah and just like all of the nuance of it as well mm-hmm. it, it it the book does such a good job of capturing that i think yes let's go to the fateful dinner with the governor yeah oh my god we know it's going to be a disaster so much has been, been built up to it that we know it's only going to be terrible and it is Uh, It starts off bad because Phil doesn't show up because George suggested that maybe he should take a bath (laughs) before meeting the governor. And Phil's like, fuck that. Yeah. He's like, tell them I stink and I like it (laughs) Uh, in the film specifically. And so, uh, you know, it is just Rose and um, uh, George in the movie, the parents are also visiting as well. Yeah. But in, in the book, it is just the governor and his his wife. The nibs. His nibs. His nibs. Is what they call the governor. What is that? What I is don't that know. His I don't nibs. know, Ian. <laughs> I, in the one scene, George says it like 10 times in a row. His I nibs. know. It's so funny. <laughs> uh, 
Rose is just drowning. Yeah. She is not even treading water in this conversation. No, she is just completely dead in the water. Like, <laughs> there is no hope for Rose. She's not trying. There, Like, her eyes are empty. Like, yeah, they've just glazed <laughs> she's over. She's given up. Like, she can't make conversation. It's super awkward with everyone. And then they're like, oh, play the piano. And she can't even play the piano. Uh, she just freezes up and can't do it. And it's so embarrassing. I love that she plays like two notes yeah. at the beginning of the song and is like, uh-uh. nope. <laughs> That's all. That's I'm sorry, folks. That's it. And and like everyone's like really nice about it. Like the governor's yeah. like, oh, don't worry about it. But we should be going. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, in the film, Phil does make a last minute appearance at the dinner mm-hmm. dressed in his to usual. Mock everybody else. Yeah, dressed in his usual cowboy attire and he kind of makes a whole point of being like, oh, you must have been dancing around with Rose's piano playing. Oh, what's that? You, you, did, didn't? you didn't play, <laughs> but you practiced so much. <laughs> and and just being the biggest horse's ass. And yeah. Re- there's like this really intense stare down in this moment in the movie between them. Yeah. Before Phil finally walks away. Mm-hmm. And I do like this moment that Rose grabs for the drink. The orange blossom. The orange blossom, which I actually uh, made us a couple during yeah. the recording of this. In the tradition of this uh, of this episode. Yes. It's gin, orange juice, and sweet vermouth. It mm-hmm. is very sweet, but not bad. Yeah. And she grabs for this drink, mm-hmm. and this is kind of her first of many alcoholic drinks to cope with Phil. Yes. Who wouldn't? No. <laughs> I would. <laughs> so this is... Uh, the point in the story where Peter, on break from school, comes to the ranch uh, to to stay for the summer. Yeah, this is definitely a shift in the story, right? Yeah. We're adding another player to the drama that's been going on between Rose, Phil, and George, and Phil kind of torturing Rose. And Peter's been, you know, at school studying to become a doctor. He comes back to the ranch and Phil is like already pissed about this. Yeah. And in fact, in the book is kind of talking to the ranch hands about how Miss Nancy is going to show up to the ranch, already turning the ranch hands against Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Peter, unfortunately, I mean, he really likes school, which is good. Yeah. But now he's leaving school uh, where he has friends mm-hmm. and is kind of like, you know, shaping his future and has to hang out with the man who is probably the worst person in the world. Torturing him and his mother. I think it's interesting and, you know, we maybe we should take a moment and talk about Peter's character because he wants to be a doctor like his father and is sort of trying to, like, live up to his father's memory and protect his mother. And, like, his relationship with his mom is really interesting because in some ways he doesn't really view her as his mother more as almost like an object of his adoration. I mean, yeah, he calls her Rose. He almost never calls her mother or ma or anything like that. Yeah. So, and there's kind of this like distance between them. Mm -hmm. And, And Peter is such an interesting and kind of strange character. Yeah. Um, like Rose just has a hard time At one point, I think it's in the movie, she says she loves him. She just doesn't know how to love him. Yeah. 
and you know she'll ask him about something and he just kind of seems distracted or mm-hmm. like almost uninterested yeah but yeah his, his kind of relationship with his mother is interesting almost like he doesn't Almost like he's more worried about her than she is for him. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. And he views George as kind of like a nice guy. Like he almost doesn't care that his mom has married. The reason that he is fine with it is because he wants his mom to be taken care of. Yeah. And he thinks his mom deserves to have a nice life. And he kind of planned on doing it himself. But if she can get to that nice life faster by marrying George, he's fine with it. Yeah. What he's not fine with is her being tortured and hurt by Phil. So he's kind of coming into the situation, assessing what's going on. And he's a very logical and somewhat cold person. Yeah. And this is sort of adding his personality to this really interesting mix. Yeah. Cody Smith McPhee, who plays uh, Peter in this movie, does such a good job. I mean... The, the the exact just it's as if Peter from the book came to life. I know. Thin, lanky, big eyes, like you just wanna like protect him from Phil and like everyone else who's like such a piece of shit to him. Yeah. Uh and you know, when he goes to the ranch, like he is immediately faced with their vitriol taunts, and taunts yeah. and like you know, the men on the horses will kind of like chase him or like make him uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And he is just immediately made kind of an outsider among them. Yeah. And we're also shown at this time that Rose is quickly descending into alcoholism, which is so sad, especially considering that, you know, her husband was an alcoholic and she never really drank before. Yeah. And that Phil is kind of driving her to this. We get kind of an explanation in the in the book more and then hinted at in the movie where Rose says she's getting these headaches. Yeah. And that Phil is likely causing the headaches because the pressure of being around him is just driving her to insanity. And so she's drinking to cope with the headaches, with the pain, with his presence, but it is starting to spiral out of control. There's this really interesting and sad scene where she kind of goes to the back of the house to sneak a drink and is like throwing up back there, but is still drinking. Yeah. And Phil kind of watching her from the window and whistling the piano tune that she yeah. was playing just to kind of mock her and show her like, I'm watching you, bitch. Like, ugh. And she can't see him, but she like knows that he's like there. It's yeah. just kind of like he's this inescapable presence around her on the ranch that she just like can't uh, get any separation from. Yeah. And at a point later in the story, too, uh, Peter discovers Phil's secret swimming hole spot. Yes. It is uh, kind of like a guarded, like a a hidden entrance that Mm -hmm. I guess you can only get in one way. Yeah. And uh, we've seen this before and have heard about it before in the book and movie. But in this scene, Peter uh, is discovering it for himself. Yeah. Phil refuses to bathe where anyone can see him. He's intensely private and doesn't bathe in the wintertime because the only place that he bathes is at this river spot. And like when Peter comes in, he finds this little like secret hideout. In the book, we find out it used to be Phil and George's childhood playhouse, right? But when Peter goes in there, he finds this like case, this like tin treasure box where there are these like magazines with Bronco Henry's name on them or his initials and uh, like images and photographs of naked posing men. Yeah. And this is exclusive to the uh, movie. Yes. And I think a 
means of furthering the uh, queer subtext of the story. Yeah. Which is definitely present in different ways in in the book. But, Mm -hmm. like, this is just really uh, driving home that idea. Yeah, there's also another scene with uh, Phil having this handkerchief where he's laying in the field, kind of putting it around his face. And we just see on the handkerchief after, like, a few different shots, the initials BH on them. Yeah. And Phil, you know, stuffing the handkerchief down his pants as well. <laughs> yeah. Getting real intimate with that <laughs> handkerchief. <laughs> what things has that handkerchief seen? <laughs> Too much. <laughs> uh, th- this scene, though, after uh, Peter is exiting the hut, ends in kind of a funny way where he realizes that Phil is there in the water and Phil yeah. uh, proceeds to chase him naked through away from the the swimming hole. (laughs) I will say that the one thing I'm not totally in love with in terms of uh, the performance of Peter is his kind of like yelps. Yeah. He kind of like, like kind of like does a lot of little like goofy screams, like when he's either being chased or like at one point he's going down a steep slope uh, on his horse and he kind of does a few of those little yelp noises yeah it's like maybe a little too <laughs> goofy or comedic i mean i think it's showing his age right he's still young i think it could have been maybe just like dialed back just like a little bit <laughs> i didn't have a problem with it yeah. but I, I see what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> like it just seemed a little bit uh, like just a tad away from being like he's like you know being chased away very cartoonish yeah We have another important scene shortly after this where um, they are haying. So they're turning grass into hay. So they have Phil and the men kind of doing this task. And George, Rose, and Peter all kind of come up for, I think, lunch, bring food up to the men. And the men immediately start kind of hooting and whistling at Peter. And in fact, in the movie, they even use the F slur when he walks by them. And, like, his pants are kind of swishing. There's, like, a comment that, like, you're supposed to soak your jeans. Yeah. Apparently back then. And the men are just really mocking him as he walks by. But Phil, or excuse me, Peter, just walks right back past them and kind of doesn't even pay any attention to them. No, it's such an impactful moment because, like, he's kind of, like, walking this gauntlet of just, like, jeering and ridicule. But seems to be totally like there's a strength to him in He's this unaffected, moment. He's almost. Yeah, where he, you know, is just kind of like walking towards his goal and what he like just wanted to look at and then walks back the opposite way. And I love on the walk back, like no one says anything. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah, this kid doesn't give a shit about what we say. Almost yeah. like people are kind of like shocked that he's just so stoic mm-hmm. in that moment. And This is what really gets Phil's attention, I think. The fact that, like, there might be more to this kid than he maybe gave him credit for originally. Yeah, calls him over. And at this point, Phil is braiding a rope with um, pieces of rawhide. And, you know, is kind of chatting with Peter and is like, hey, you know, we maybe got off on the wrong foot when I burned your paper flower and I called you a sissy. And anyway, anyway, moving on. But sort of makes an overture of like, we could be friends and I could teach you some things about ranching and I could, you know, braid this rope for you. And what's going through Phil's mind is pretty clear. 
in the book and the movie through like a lot of really good shots. Yeah. Where he's kind of looking at Peter and then he looks at Rose. Yeah, kind of like past Peter and mm-hmm. like giving her this this kind of like sinister stare. Yeah. And, you know, Peter wanting to be polite and respectful is like, oh, wow, you know, that rope is like really dandy and like it (laughs) sure would be swell if you uh, taught me how to ride and all these other things and so they kind of make this like pact here that like as Phil is working on the rope for Peter they will kind of like work together to like make him a little bit more accustomed to like ranch life yeah and in Phil's mind this could be a tool to drive um, Rose away from his brother like in his mind he's like I'm going to turn this son against the mother. Yeah. It's going to make her crazier. I'm going to torture her more. And then eventually she and my brother will get divorced because it'll all fall apart. Or she'll kill herself. I don't care which. Yeah, he whatever, talks about that. Yeah. yeah, whatever happens, happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this begins kind of um, Phil's plot, which, you know, involves Peter. And, and you know, Rose is feeling this pressure. And, like, we can tell that she's deteriorating more and more. And, you know, there's this moment between her and Peter later on where she's clearly trying to like assert their connection again because she's feeling distant from him and she's worried about him with Phil and but she's drunk right yeah so she's trying to make this connection to him that he's in you know Peter is in the the room with her and she's talking about her childhood and when she was at school and they got chalk stars and the valentines and like I think when you're reading it in the book it seems a little weird, but it's not that strange. But when you see the performance, you realize just how drunk she is. Yeah. And how sad it is and how she's just kind of rambling, trying to connect with Peter, but ultimately failing. Yeah. I mean, this this rant is just like, so I remember watching it the first time in the movie. I'm like, what the fuck is she talking about yeah, right now? Yeah. I also love the descriptions of her like drunken state and the escalation of that in uh, the book. I love how it talks about how she walked. She can't walk through a room now without touching things. Yeah. Just like for stability. Yeah. To kind of like make sure she isn't like wobbling or faltering. She'll just kind of like touch every little piece of furniture as she moves through a room. And She's literally like, stumbling from one piece of furniture to another. Essentially. Yeah. Uh, just like a really kind of nuanced way of like putting all that into perspective. Yeah. And there's this point too. And like Peter can obviously tell what's going on. Yeah. And there's this point where he's saying, you don't have to do this. And it wasn't quite clear in the movie exactly what he was referring to. If he just meant you don't have to try so hard. Yeah. You don't have to kind of try to connect with me. Um, But it's when you read the book that you realize he's talking about the alcoholism. Yeah. And he says to her, I'll see to it that you don't have to do this. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, once again, a scene where, like, watching the movie, I was kind of like, I feel like there's a context here I'm not quite getting. Like, something could have been, like, tweaked or refined. Yeah. And, I mean, I think, to a degree, the movie is trying to capture this, like, ambiguous kind of dynamic that, like, you're not quite sure what you're picking up on or what you're supposed to, like, infer from certain situations. But I don't always think that's executed perfectly yeah i'd say mm-hmm. um so yeah so peter kind of has this like it's it's more clear in the book he kind of has this resolve 
to help his mother in the state that she is currently in. Yeah, there is a scene in the movie where we see him kind of flipping through his doctor books, seemingly with like a purposeful intent. And then later on in the book and the movie, there's a scene where he is kind of riding out alone and finds this uh, dead cow and is kind of like cutting it up. But we've already seen him cut up a rabbit yeah. before. And it's very unsettling because he just has this cute rabbit. And then all of a sudden, like the the serving girl comes up and the rabbit is like dissected. <laughs> yeah, just like pinned open. Yeah, but I think it shows his coldness a bit. Yeah, and I, I love too that like at this point, it's more just a surprise. I wouldn't say it's like concerning. No. Because he is wanting to be a doctor. So it makes sense that like, yeah, he probably would have to like be willing to do this kind of thing. Yeah, and it's part of his training. Yeah, exactly. So like the rabbit part is surprising, but like at this point, it's not like he's alarming. A, he's a sociopath or anything like that. Yeah. But it is interesting kind of like shining a light on how Peter is more capable than I think you were thinking up until this point. Yeah, he has hidden depths here. And like his motives are not exactly clear in the movie. And I think in the book, you're starting to realize that he does have specific motives and an intent. Yes. Peter and Phil are are starting to bond. They're starting to spend time together. Phil is teaching him how to ride uh, poor, poor Peter's struggling. Yes. All the ranch hands are not <laughs> of any help, help to him. And uh, Phil's also, you know, telling him all these Bronco Henry stories and trying to get him accustomed to ranch life, sharing his life with him. I think he likes having an attentive listener. I, y- yes, absolutely. This was something that clicked for me more. Reading the book and watching the movie a second time is yeah. like the, the idea that like, in a way, Phil has just recently lost George, who was kind of his, like, companion. Yeah. The person he talked to, reminisced with, and mm-hmm. shared stories with. And, like, I think unexpectedly he's kind of found a replacement for this in Peter that he wasn't, you know, uh, anticipating. Yeah, I think you can see in both the book and the movie that the two of them do seem to have like a connection, Mm -hmm. whether that's, you know, real or fake or what's going on. Like the two of them are coming together and and parts of it feel natural, right? Yes. And I think this is kind of um, embodied in the the dog that they both can see in the mountain. Mm -hmm. This was a moment where I was glad I had seen the movie. Yeah. Because I think if I read this in the book, I would have been like, what? What are you talking about? What are they talking about? I don't quite get it. Uh, and I mean, I think it's intent intentionally kind of vague, but essentially when Phil looks out at this mountain range, there's kind of a, a shape that he can see in the Mm -hmm. mountains that the movie interprets as just a like sharp shadow that's kind of cast on the mountainside, uh, that is in the shape of a dog Mm -hmm. and none of the other ranch hands can see it. No, they don't know what he's looking at it. it. No. Um, Phil seems to be the only one who can see it. And Bronco Henry yes. could see it. And so uh, in this moment, Peter points it out and mm-hmm. Phil is surprised about it. Yeah. And so this idea that they can both see the dog kind of implies this like internal connection between them. Something yes. that's kind of like deeper and is bonding them. Somehow they're alike. Yeah. 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 In a way that's like very abstract, but interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, we have this other scene that's 
very impactful between them where they are, you know, fixing some fences out on the rent on the ranch. And there's this pile of posts and a rabbit underneath. And Phil kind of thinks it's funny to like pull the posts up to see if the rabbit will run away. Yeah. It's a very like juvenile boyish aspect to his personality that we've already discussed. Yeah. And he ends up uh, cutting himself on some wood mm-hmm. while he's doing this. But uh, the rabbit ends up hurting its leg and Peter has to uh, break its neck and put it out of its misery. And, yeah. and I think Phil is kind of surprised in this moment. Yeah. And they end up both sitting down to lunch and talking and Phil kind of begins to question and talk to Peter about his parents, mm-hmm. first about his mother and her alcoholism that is really like becoming more and more pronounced. And yeah. Peter acknowledging that he's aware of it and mm-hmm. the issue And this conversation then naturally kind of drifts towards his dad. Yeah. And he talks about his dad being an alcoholic and the fact that Peter was the one that found his dad uh, when he killed himself and had to cut him down. And uh, Phil kind of recognizing and maybe kind of sympathizing with him. I'm like, wow, is this the (laughs) only moment that Phil ever showed sympathy towards anybody yeah because he kind of says like you poor kid yeah and i'm like wow that's that's honestly a lot for this character (laughs) like i'm not i'm not even joking no i I know it is and there's a moment too here in the movie where uh peter kind of says my dad worried about me um being too strong and not kind enough i love this i really love this line being uh transplanted into this scene yes Because I think you have more context at this point for Peter's personality. Yeah. The idea that, like, at first you feel, like, so much sympathy for him. He seems so weak. I mean, he's physically very thin. Yeah. Almost frail seeming. Like, he seems so out of place in this, like, ranch and, like, among these, like, kind of classic cowboy uh, burly men. Yeah. But you've also, at this point, seen a side of him like, with how he's able to deal with animals mm-hmm. and, like, is willing to kill them in order to, like, study them. Yeah. Where you do start to see, like, a coldness or a detachment to him. Yeah. So when he says this about, like, my dad said I was too strong and not kind enough. Phil brushes it off, right? Yeah, Phil laughs at him. Yeah. But I think you as the viewer at this point, you're starting to get some more insight into, like, maybe what his dad meant. Yeah, and you're kind of, like, interesting. Yeah, and I think in the book, when you get this line so early on, like, maybe on a reread, you would find it, like, very interesting. Yeah. But I don't think the first time you read it, you get have enough understanding of Peter as a character to, like, get much out of this. No, I agree. There's an extended uh, scene in the book where we follow a Native American man and his son. And they used to live on the land that Phil and a lot of the other ranchers own now, but were moved to a reservation against their will, obviously. And he's bringing his son back to this land to kind of show him where his family grew up and where all his ancestors lived and had this life. And then Phil doesn't let them go onto his property. Yeah, Phil happens to be out there when they are passing by Mm -hmm. and he just like is like, nope, turn around. Yeah. And it's so sad because like you get so much context to this in the book of like this dad and the kid who doesn't know anything about what life used to be like before they were moved 
onto the reservation and the dad just like wanting to give him something and yeah like, basically this child being introduced to racism like on the spot here yeah and it's really sad and in fact rose and george kind of see this father and son passing by later on their way back because you know phil didn't let them pass and rose is upset by this and hearing that george is like well phil probably didn't let them go up into the property and Rose says, why don't you camp on our land? Like, we would be honored to have you. And it's really sweet. And Phil is really pissed about this. Yeah. And kind of confronts George. And George actually stands his ground against Phil here mm-hmm. in this scene. But this is book only. Um, we get kind of a similar scene, though, in the movie. It's just been changed a bit. Yeah, and kind of combined with something else from the book. Mm-hmm. So Phil, unsurprisingly, is also anti-Semitic. Yes. Uh, he doesn't he doesn't mind the the hardworking, like good <laughs> Jews. Oh my god. Uh, only the schemers and the shysters and the yeah. uh, everything else. Um so he has this real problem with like these men who kind of show up on their property looking to buy stuff, mm-hmm. whether it's cow hides or equipment or, like, whatever. Like, he kind of gets, like, really irritated with them. Yeah. And we get a scene like this in the book uh, where some uh, some men show up looking to buy cow hides. And in the film, it is a uh, Native American man and his son. So yeah. kind of those characters in this role mm-hmm. um, in, in the film. Yeah. And Phil traditionally burns the hides. He does nothing with them. No. He wants to burn them because he doesn't want anyone else to have them. And this is typical Phil. And in this scene... Rose kind of decides that she's either going to sell the hides or just give them away. And in the movie, when she gives it to the Native American and his son, they give her a pair of gloves clearly made out of this hide. Yeah. Um, And she's very touched and moved by this. I mean, she's also drunk. So, like, the fact that she's crying over the gloves is a little silly. But it is also clear that, like, she is trying to go against Phil a little bit here. Um, And in the book, she just kind of sells the hides to people showing up just kind of to get it, Phil. Yeah. And uh, she has a in the film on her way back from selling the hides, just (laughs) kind of casually collapses (laughs) just in a field with her gloves on. Yeah. And George carries her to bed. And when he does, he like tries to take the gloves and she's like, no, no, leave my gloves. (laughs) Not my gloves. Not my gloves. I love them more than anything in the world. Like she's. Uh, just very, very wasted, very white girl wasted. Yeah, and I think we're seeing in this scene that George is aware of her alcoholism. Yeah. And he's clearly trying to to help her and be kind and not mention it. Um, and later he tells Phil, like, Rose is ill, you know? Yeah. Um, but, like, in the book, she's specifically thinking, like, George is going to divorce me, you know? Yeah. And she's worried about that. And we don't know. I mean, it, it seems like their relationship is on the rocks because of this. Yeah. When Phil and Peter arrive from their uh, outing to discover the cow hides are gone, Phil really blows up over it. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of like, once again, I think a little bit more context could have been used. Like, even in the book, the fact that He's pissed and about her selling the hides. And Peter says, why would she do that? She knows we need them. Yeah. And I, I you know, I think implying because like they're making the rope. And yeah. And they need rawhide to make the rope. And so you are like, 
was her point in selling them to keep them to from in, doing yeah that. to interfere with this bonding that they're doing over the rope making mm-hmm. I don't know like I think that's a good motive but I don't think that seems like what she's doing in no, the moment she's too drunk to be that plotting yeah but I like that idea I just don't think it's like it doesn't feel like the reason she did it yeah um so like the whole purpose of this and like you know we just got done I kind of even forgot like that they were making the rope with that cowhide. Yeah. Because Phil's blowing up about like, we needed those. And I'm like, wait, why did he, mm-hmm. why is he mad about this again? Yeah. Because you wouldn't think he would need like 30 cowhides <laughs> to make like one fucking rope. Yeah. I, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, But this is kind of like where really shit starts hitting the fan. Yeah. There's a confrontation with George here where Phil is accusing Rose of being a drunk. And so, you know, things that have been simmering below the surface for a long time are really blowing up here. Um, And there's this moment here where after, you know, Phil has confronted George, Peter kind of comes back in and is like, I have some rawhide that you can use. Yeah. And when he says this, he touches Phil's arm Mm -hmm. in kind of a tender way. And Phil seems like and and he says, I have rawhide because I was cutting it into strips because I wanted to be like you and make a rope. Yeah. And Phil just seems like very moved by this. And in fact, in the film, he puts his hands on Peter's face. Yeah. And the camera is just kind of like circling around them. Mm -hmm. And the music in this moment, too, is very beautiful. I'm not sure if we've specifically mentioned the music in this movie. The score is really awesome. It's by Johnny Greenwood, who is one of the members. I'm sorry, I forget what instrument he plays, but Mm -hmm. uh, a member of Radiohead, who has just been blowing up the uh, soundtrack or score scene in movies. Like, he's done a ton of Paul Thomas Anderson movies, uh, he did There Will Be Blood, the wow. score for that movie, and a lot of others. I think he might have worked on Licorice Pizza also. Okay. Um, he has just done so many. Like, he he and David Fincher, or not David Fincher, Jesus, um, Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor. Uh, th- those are the big guys right now mm-hmm. in, in music scores, I'd say. Yeah. I just want to read from the book this scene a little bit because it's so illuminating, I'd say. And then the boy touched his arm. Touched it. Phil, I've got rawhide to finish the rope. You've got it. What you doing with rawhide? And the boy's hand remained right where it was. I cut some up, Phil. I wanted to learn, to braid like you. Please take what I've got. They were facing each other, and the boy's hand remained right where it was. You've been good to me, Phil. Take what I've got. You've been good. Phil, at that moment, that place that smelled of years... Felt in his throat what he'd felt once before, and dear God knows, never expected nor wanted to feel again, for the loss of it breaks your heart. Oh sure, could have been the boy's offer, was but a cheap means of getting his pretty little mother out of the soup, but wanting to braid like him. What reason for the boy to have rawhide, but wanting to braid like him, to emulate him? Why else would he have cut up strips of rawhide? The boy wanted to become him, to merge with him as Phil had only once before wanted to become one with someone, and that one was gone, trampled to death while Phil, 20 years old, watched from the top rail of the Bronx Corral. Ah, God, but Phil had almost forgot what the touch of a hand will do, and his heart counted the seconds that Peter's was on him and rejoiced at the quality of the pressure. It told him what his heart required to know. Yeah, very um, 
just very insightful to Phil's character. And I think this is we've we've had allusions in the book to uh, Phil being queer. Yeah. And it being repressed. It's a lot more subtle in the book. Yeah. But this moment, I think, is probably obviously the most. And I I mean, like, but it goes beyond that, too. Right. Because I mean, I think it's just like personal connection you know, with another person, kind of like an intimacy yes. with someone that, like, he hasn't experienced since Bronco Henry. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, obviously there's a queer subtext here and, like, you can kind of assume that he had some type of relationship uh, with Bronco Henry and is maybe, like, feeling some kind of draw towards Peter in the same way. Yeah, and I just wanted to, like, I forgot to read, like, this one last section. So it says... um, Was it not fate that the boy had looked on him in his nakedness in that hidden place known only to George and to himself and to Bronco Henry? Just so he had looked on the boy's nakedness in that eternity when the boy had walked proud and unprotected past the open tents, jeered at and scorned a pariah. But Phil knew, God knows he knew, what it was to be a pariah. And he had loathed the world should it loathe him first. I love that line, he had loathed the world before it could loathe him. Yeah. And that explaining like Phil's animosity and hatred kind of for everybody. Yeah. That he had felt like he was a pariah. It's implied because of his homosexuality. Yeah. There's just such an interesting depth to Phil here. And like, and and this like naturally leads us into the next scene in the film, mm-hmm. which actually isn't in the book, which yeah. is super interesting. It's implied. Phil says, I'm going to finish the rope tonight. I would like it if you would, you know, come and, you know, watch me finish it. Yeah. Which kind of has a sexual implication. It or does. It sounds like it. Yeah. Um, but in the, f- but we never actually see that scene play out, which is like super fascinating. No, but the movie kind of shows us a more intensely erotic and suspenseful scene between the two of them where Phil gets the rawhide. He puts his hands in the water with the rawhide and you see the cut that he got earlier and the blood in the water. Yeah. And he is braiding the rope. And I love like part of the braiding process. He's he kind of like pulls it against his hip. And just like that hip turn movement feels like sexual in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Peter lights the cigarette that he is holding out for Phil mm-hmm. to, you know, inhale from. Like, he, Phil never actually touches it. He just, like, inhales Puts from it to his mouth. Peter's hand. And Phil's telling him stories of Bronco Henry. Yeah. And this time that he saved his life by them uh, sharing a sleeping bag naked. Yes. Uh, to survive the cold. Well, we don't know if they were naked. But. I guess he. He doesn't ever say. Because. Because. Uh, Peter, Peter asks. Asks. And I guess Phil just laughs at him. Yeah. But I. Uh, yeah. That's I, how you. That's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like them just sharing this like very intimate moment together. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a more apt object to define this relationship than the rope that Phil is making. Yes. It's so perfect because like when you think of a rope, you think of like binding yes and constraining mm-hmm. and obviously tying up which is like in a way what phil is trying to do with peter because like he thinks peter is too effeminate too too much of a sissy and yeah. he wants him to be like more of a manly man kind like of him. a cowboy yeah and kind of like 
fit him into this like idea of what it is to be a man. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, binding him to that. But at the same time, you see them, you see Peter kind of like breaking through to Phil to this side of him that he probably hasn't felt. Yeah. For so long. Mm -hmm. And like, in a way you could also see it as them like being bound together in a way, like by this thing that they share between them. Yeah. Seemingly. Yeah. And I mean, it's implied that both of them are homosexual, right? Yeah. And they have this, this emotional coming together and something that Phil's repressed for so long is finally coming out, even though he has bad motives for wanting to befriend Peter, you know, he like almost against his own will is finding tenderness for the boy. And the, and Peter seems to, kind of find a connection with Phil too and and maybe not reciprocate but kind of be at least aware of their connection. He's at least like intrigued yeah. by Phil and kind of like what he's seeing in Phil mm-hmm. in these moments. Yeah. And yeah, this whole like rope braiding scene is like it's so tense. Yeah. In such a kind of uncomfortable way, but just like an intriguing way. Yeah. And this leads us into Kind of the next scene. Yeah, the next day. The next day. And Phil does not come down to breakfast, or in the book, he just comes down to breakfast very late. And everyone is suddenly like, what's going on with Phil? He always comes down for breakfast. So everyone is like, where's Phil? And you're like, yeah, where is he? Is he like in the barn still with Peter? Yeah. (laughs) And like, I, I love the tension of that kind of being up in the air for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you're like, did they get together last night? Yeah. <laughs> and then George enters Phil's room where you find Phil on his bed and he's sick. Yeah. And his hand looks fucking disgusting. Yeah. That cut that he had earlier. And George is like, I'll get the car. We'll go into town for the doctor. And Phil is kind of like very zombie-like, you know? He's just like, Puts on his suit, walks down the steps. There's a a part where he kind of looks at Rose and doesn't even really react to her and just kind of wanders outside. In the movie, he's a lot more kind of out of it than is portrayed in the book. Yeah. uh, And God, there's just such a heartbreaking moment in the movie, too, where, you know, George is getting the car and was waiting for Phil. But Phil goes to the barn first and gets the rope. Yeah. And he is like, where's the boy? And he like is trying to like, Give and, and he's kind of like in a fever yeah. state, I think. But he's like trying to find Peter to give him the rope that they finished last night. Yeah. And when he can't find him, he just kind of like drops it on the ground. Mm-hmm. And he and George take off together. And and Peter is kind of like pacing in his room. Mm-hmm. He's got his comb out, which is his indicator of his like anxiousness. Yeah. Him running his fingers over his comb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they go into town. Yep. The and, next scene yep. that we see is George picking out a coffin. And it's so, like, whoa, like, so sudden. And the book is very similar. Yeah. Because it talks about Rose seeing Phil leaving and it being, like, it's just vaguely mentioned, like, that was the last time she saw him. Yeah. And you're like, what? And then it's like, anyway, the funeral happened. And you're like, wait, wait, (laughs) Phil died? Like, (laughs) it's kind of got that, like, sudden shocking thing that the movie does. Yeah. And Phil is dead. They're at the funeral. Mm-hmm. And the way he died is still kind of like uncertain. Yeah. The doctor kind of comes up to him and is like, um, I think it was anthrax. 
uh, because of like the convulsions that he has. Like, yeah. I'm not certain. I'm, I've had it. I'm sent it off to be tested. And they're both kind of confused by it. And George, especially because he's like, you know, Phil was always really careful with the animals. Like, he never handled diseased animals. Yeah. I'm not sure how this could have happened. And then we see, too, an interesting moment between uh, Rose and George and George's parents, who have obviously come for the funeral of their son, Phil. And the the mother ends up giving some of her rings to Rose, and then they invite the two of them to come for Christmas with them. And so, like, I like that this is sort of implying that already they feel like they can come together now that Phil's gone. Yeah, I, and, and the film captures this so well, I think. Like, just this kind of, like, sense of, like, relief, almost. This idea that, like everyone can fucking relax now yeah. a little bit and mm-hmm. that like things are maybe going to be better. And uh, during this funeral scene, we get, we return to the ranch where Peter is, Yeah, which I didn't think about this, but like, you know, he's old enough to be at the funeral. Like it's his uncle essentially. Yeah. I don't know why he wouldn't. Yeah. But um, he's at home passing the time and I'm trying to remember. So he he like looks at a Bible passage from mm-hmm. Psalms. Yes. And this is where we get the title of the movie from. Mm-hmm. It's about protect my darling from the sword. And from the power and of the dog. And from the power of the dog. Yeah. Uh, and we also see him in the film handling the rope mm-hmm. with gloves on. Yes. And I think this is a very, very smart decision to further imply like his knowledge of kind of what happened yes i also think it's just fascinating that he's like keeping the rope yes and that he like clearly feels like some kind of attachment for it yes and then he gets up and kind of looks out the window and we see george and rose returning from the funeral and he's looking down at them and sees the two of them kiss and come together so it's implied that like even the troubles between rose and george and maybe her alcoholism Like, now that Phil is gone, things are going to be better for them, too. And then Peter just kind of smiles. Yeah. And that's it. That's the end. And when I tell you that the ending of this movie, like, totally shocked me, like, I was stunned. Yeah. At the end of this film, I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wait, does that mean... Did he? Yeah. Did he do this? Was it intentional? Like, it couldn't have been intentional. Yeah. Like, obviously, like, it's Peter. Like, he wouldn't yeah. have, Yeah, like, and then you someone. just start, like, thinking about it more, and you're like, oh, my God, he did this. Yeah, like, he knew. Yeah. Like, he understood what happened and, like, set it up. Yeah. Um, I do think it is a little bit... There are some confusing elements to this reveal. Yeah. I think more so maybe in the movie. In the book, there's one line. So, like... The reason Phil used the infected rawhide was because the rest of it was sold by the mom. Yeah. But, like, that wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't planned by Peter. No, but how else would Peter have gotten Phil to use this infected rawhide? Mm -hmm. So that part almost makes it seem like it would have been, like, an accident or, like, unintentional. But the book gives one line about, like, his mom had kind of taken over his plan. Unintentionally? Unintentionally. Yeah. So, like... Even though we don't know what his plan was, clearly he was scheming something 
before this. Yeah, and if anybody's confused, you can get anthrax from diseased animals um, through human contact, especially through like an open wound or through your mouth. Like if you're, you know, somehow end up swallowing um, contamination. So that is how Phil died. So Peter intentionally gave him diseased rawhide, his open wound mingled with it, and he fucking died. Yeah. Well, and that was the other thing, too, was his open wound. Yeah. Was also kind of caused in an accidental way that, like, Peter wasn't responsible for. But then again, you know, Phil was always cutting his hands because he never wore gloves. Well, and that's more clear in the book as well. Like, yeah. it, it constantly is talking about the little nicks and scratches and cuts that uh, Phil gets on his hands. So, mm-hmm. like... In that way, you're like, okay, it probably would have happened no matter what. But in the movie, it just seems like the one cut. Yeah. So I do think, like, the implication of Peter planning this, like, leaves you with a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. even if you understand that he did it intentionally. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the author here because we haven't talked about him that much. When this book came out in the 60s and when Thomas Savage was writing, you know, he was a full-time writer for a lot of his life, but he wasn't super successful, and this book even did not sell a lot. Like, it was critically acclaimed, but um, he wasn't super popular. And he actually ended up growing up on a ranch, Mm-hmm. in Montana for most of his life when he was young and then ended up moving out towards Maine and like the East Coast um, for his adult life. And he has a really interesting story. So he, his mom and dad divorced when he was young and then his mom remarried a very rich cattle rancher. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a stepdad who was a cattle rancher. And, um, you know, he had this uncle in his life, and I just want to describe this uncle because this is written in the afterword to this book. So this man is called Ed, his uncle, or his step-uncle, I guess. Yeah. Ed was a bachelor by profession, a woman hater. He was brilliant, quick at chess, puzzles, and word games. I recall that he knew the meaning of the word baobab. He read widely, etc., etc. He was lean, had a craggy profile under thick black hair he cut no more than four times a year. He despised towns where hair was cut, where men gathered to engage in silly banter and chewed food in public. His long, (laughs) sharp nose was an antenna quick to pick up the faintest rumor and send it on back to his brain to be amplified. His laughter was an insulting bray. It crowded and pushed the air out ahead of it. He said many true words about other men. I never heard him say a kind one. And then he talks about his half-sister and said, The little girl became for Ed his chief instrument of torture. He began to woo her away from my mother. He did a fine job. Ed talked to the little girl around my mother. That her daughter found Ed so lovable and so responsive to her will must have made my mother doubt her sanity. Wow. So, I mean... This is describing Phil. Oh, my God. To a T. So the fact that Peter is very strongly based on the author himself, I think, is very interesting. And, you know, we also know that Thomas Savage was a closeted homosexual man. Yeah. He married and had a family. And I think him and his wife had an understanding and, you know, had a deep friendship between them. Yeah. But, you know, he was gay. And this book is a lot about toxic masculinity right and this story is about the type of men that hate women hate themselves and turn that hate that hatred that they have against themselves outward towards everybody else 
I mean, it makes so much sense in a way that Phil is based on a real person. Because when you read about him. Yeah, he's so complicated. He's so complicated. And yet, like, in a way makes such his character makes sense in kind of a weird, twisted way. And, like, his little mannerisms feel so specific. Like, the way he'll, like, mispronounce words, Mm -hmm. either when he's mad or, like, to make fun of someone. Or, like, he likes accents. He likes imitating people's accents. Uh um, There's just so many qualities to him that feel harmonious with this character. Yeah. That, like, hearing that he's based on a real person, I'm like, yeah, I can totally believe it. Yeah, and, I mean, growing up, with this person who maybe tormented Thomas Savage when he was young. Yeah. You know, writing this story about it. I just find it so, so fascinating into his life. And like that he was able to write this story even, you know, in the 60s. And like, yes, it's not overt with its homosexuality, but it's pretty obvious. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I think that's amazing. Yeah. You know, I I can't say that this is like a problem with the book. But I am left wanting to have seen more interaction between Peter and Phil. Because that dynamic, when you do get to it in the story, yeah. is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And, like, how much is Peter manipulating him? Yes. You know, how... Because, I mean, you could also argue that Peter, maybe he's asexual. Maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you really don't know his sexuality. And especially, like, understanding his plan by the end of the story any interest he seemed to have in Phil, you could chalk up to just his him, plan. Yeah, him manipulating him. Yeah. Uh, to get close to him. So, like, you know, it is unclear by the end. Like, yeah, if he is the stand in for Thomas Savage, mm-hmm. then I think it, it is safe to say that he is uh, gay. But yeah, just his dynamic with Phil is so fascinating and how. I don't want to say sweet that Phil takes a liking to him because I also think it's very self-centered. Yeah. Because I think the reason he likes him is that like, oh, tell me about the old days, Phil. And like, yeah, it's oh, all about him. I idolize you, Phil. I want to be just like you. I was making this rope just to be like you. And, yeah. But it's also sad that that's what Phil connects to. And you yeah. know what I mean? That maybe that's the only way he can relate to a person. Yeah. And of course you feel kind of sad when after Phil dies, everybody seems like they're much better off. You're like, that is so depressing. <laughs> it is. Okay. So which one's better though? I am shocked that I'm going to go this way because when we watched the movie, I really liked it. Yeah. And I still really like it. Uh Uh-huh. This book, though, was so fucking good. Yeah. It was excellent. Yeah. Uh, Just the writing style. It was so readable. I like the way that it switches between perspectives so much. Yeah. It's just so insightful to the characters. Everyone feels so, so well-rounded and fleshed out. And it, it, it's just so engaging I think it's also a great companion to the movie. It really is. And I struggled with this a lot, too, because I was like, oh, there's so many in the moments in the movie that I just love. Yeah. And I mean, the cinematography, the music, the performances for the actors, like everything is going right in this film. And I love it a lot. But like you said, there are some moments that I was a little confused. Yeah. And the book just rounds out that knowledge and just makes it a richer story. And like you were saying, the writing is just so engaging and I really, really enjoyed it. I would highly recommend this book. Like if you're like, oh, a Western written in the 60s. I mean, this is this is a quality book. I couldn't agree more. Like I would recommend this to almost anyone, especially anyone who liked this movie, 
absolutely read the book because yeah. like they complement each other so well. You, yeah. you gain an insight into the film that the film like alludes to a lot, but mm-hmm. like maybe is a little too shallow on at points. Yeah. But then also there are points in the book that I was reading where I'm like, I'm not sure I would have understood this if I hadn't seen it in the movie. Or it's really cool to see it play out visually. Yeah. Like the scene at the funeral where the mom gives her the The rings. Yeah. It's described kind of so briefly and vaguely in the book that I was like, I don't know if I would have understood what happened here Mm -hmm. if I hadn't seen it in the movie. Yeah. Um, So this is just a great case where like book and movie are both great and they both kind of like heighten each other and kind of fill in the gaps of each other. Yeah, they're a great combo, which I always love to see on this podcast when a book and movie just go hand in hand and you can just love both of them. I know. But we slightly do prefer the book. But we still have to pick one. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, go watch this movie if you haven't seen it. Go read the book if you haven't read it. It's it's seriously worth it. Yeah. Uh, Now that we've decided that, shall we do a lightning round? Let's do it. So first up, I just want to mention like two random things from the movie. One is that Peter is just hula hooping outside in one scene. And I'm like, (laughs) were hula hoops invented at this time? And why is this part of his personality? And then we never see the hula hoop again. No, he doesn't. The the (laughs) hula hoop never returns. And then there's also a comment that Phil makes about the women that their parents wanted them to marry. Um, And he mentions the tomato soup queen. (laughs) I'm I'm guessing she was uh, inheriting a tomato soup uh, company from her Empire. family, but yeah, yeah. What if it was like Campbell's? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was like so fun. like never explained. Just no. the tomato soup queen. Okay, so um, so there's this really funny part where it goes into the history of Phil and George's parents and like <laughs> the awful, uncomfortable dinner parties that they tried to like put, yeah. put on and just like. <laughs> They never worked out. They were always terrible. No one knew what to talk about. And there is one that they refer to as like the cabbage dinner party. Yes. Because uh, it's going terrible. No one knows what to talk about. Like things are just awkward. And then a minister happens to show up. And uh, this is where the uh, the book kicks in. It was the minister himself who had brought up the subject of cabbage. His wife, the German extraction, fancy cabbage. And he was both astounded and flattered by the avidity <laughs> with which the company took it up. The women expressing either affection or dislike for the vegetable. The men using it as a springboard for memories of their mother's preparation of sauerkraut, (laughs) of the primitive gardens in the country, and of the dear past long gone. Recipes for the preparation and preservation and the enhancement of cabbage (laughs) were exchanged and each woman vowed, with a nod of the head, that she would soon attempt the recipe with the other. Phil referred to that as the cabbage dinner, and it was one of the last parties that the old Burbanks ever attempted, but there had been others, the Mudhole Dinner and the Grizzly Bear Dinner. <laughs> I love that, the cabbage dinner. The ca- and I love that, like, there's no explanation for what the Mudhole Dinner or the ba- Grizzly Bear Dinner refer to. No, we never find out. <laughs> but I just love this idea that, like, everyone's so starved for conversation that They're a like, cabbage! Yes, oh my god, cabbage! And the minister is like, oh my god, everyone's, like, so into my cabbage idea. (laughs) Next for lightning round, I just want to mention something small from the book. Um, We hear about George and Phil's parents having these like magazines. They get all these fancy magazines sent to them because they're so cultured, right? And then they like have someone pick them up and drop them off at the school. And like this was such a little nugget in the story because we had heard earlier about how Peter at the school would cut pictures out of magazines 
and put in his scrapbook. And this this his scrapbook was like his ideal life for himself and his mother, where they'd be rich and like taken care of. And this is like his fantasy. And he mentions like he didn't know where the school got the magazines, but they were like fancy ones. And so he cuts up pictures, creates his album, and we find out later. It's from the Burbanks. Wow, what a good catch. Isn't that cool? I don't even think I would have caught that on a reread because yeah. I like, totally forgot about that detail. But that's how intricate and like well plotted and laid out this book is. Everything's like interwoven. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting, uh, behind the scenes of this movie, Benedict Cumberbatch got real method with it. <laughs> uh, he didn't bathe. Oh my God. A lot. <laughs> a lot of not bathing is what he did. <laughs> and in fact, he and uh, Kirsten Dunst like kind of had this like tense behind the scenes kind of. Really? They just like didn't interact. Okay. Like at all. Mm-hmm. Like he he kept his distance from her and like kept things like very uncomfortable. Yeah. But then I think as soon as like the production was done, like they were like, okay, we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Kirsten Dunst and uh, Cody Smith McPhee, I think also bonded a lot. Yeah. And interestingly enough, she is only 14 years older than he is. Really? Yeah. Wow. He's like in his mid, true. mid to late twenties. Wow. So <laughs> there's your behind the scenes factoids. So that's lightning round. And that's our episode. Thank you for listening to this one. We hope you enjoy it again. What a great combo. I'm so glad we were able to do this episode. Yes. Uh, just again, a reminder of our Oscars episode. Yes. I'll be very curious if this takes home or well, I should say what awards this will take home. I'm sure yeah. it will take home some. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, you know, might beat it. Uh, if you want to listen to that, you can join us on Patreon at any level for access to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't join us on Patreon, leaving us a positive review or star rating in Apple Podcasts is super helpful and yeah. appreciated. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook. That's all at CoverToCredits.com. Yep. And uh, thanks again for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.